I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles. Our text for this morning is verses 17 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, right there at the beginning of the New Testament. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The Christmas story, the gospel. Last night, that's right, we, we had, how many of you guys were here last night? What, what an awesome service. <laughs> uh, it, it was fabulous. We immersed ourselves in, in the Christmas story. That's what we come to know Luke 2 as, the Christmas story, that and some combination of Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. It's a Christmas story. Nothing wrong with that, but, but I've always felt that the term Christmas story just fell woefully short of what was really going on here. Somehow, uh, we miss the significance of these passages and what they really mean. So this morning, I want to call them the story of all stories. I want to call it the perfect story. Because I believe that every great story ever told, every fairy tale ever written, has the echo of this story right here. Great stories tell us about the battle, the struggle between good and evil. They speak of, of happy endings. They speak of, of joy. They speak of, of things that are satisfying, things that are fulfilling. Now, not all stories are satisfying or fulfilling, but even those that aren't are a sometimes uncomfortable reminder of, of things that we're looking for. A reminder of the fact that we, we'd all like to have a happy ending. We'd all like to be, be fulfilled. We'd all like to be completed by the stories that we hear. That gives us hope that perhaps our own story will be fulfilling and completed. I want to show you on this Christmas morning how the story of Jesus Christ is the only true story, the only perfect story, the only story that can truly fulfill all of our desires and all of our needs. Last week we looked at the genealogy 
in Matthew chapter 1. We saw that the bloodline of Jesus Christ was, was filled with who? Good people? Bad people? Outcasts? Popular people? Successes? Failures? Evil people? And people that were trying to be good? As a matter of fact, what we found out was the genealogy of Jesus Christ filled with a long line of people just like you and me, just like our families. We saw the hope we can find in the fact that God used all types of all people to come to the moment where this baby is born. Baby is introduced into the world and salvation enters the world. God walks among us. And what he brings with him is, is hope. He brings hope. Last week we saw hope revealed. The revelation of hope in the genealogy. If God can use people like the ones we see in the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 1, maybe, just maybe, he can use you and me as well. Maybe there's a reason and a purpose for us being here. So this week I want to go back to the same passage. And I want to examine a little bit closer. I see another truth that is deeply embedded in these 25 verses. I want to show you this morning this passage not only reveals this incredible hope, but it bears a promise as well. The promise that that hope we have in Jesus Christ and in the work that he did on the cross is perfect in every way. It's a perfect hope. It means that it's a hope that we can count on, a hope that can get us through those times when we feel maybe there's no hope. A hope that can get us through those times when we feel that there's no purpose. Those times when we look around ourselves and wonder if it's even worth the effort that we're putting into it. Perfect hope. It's the hope, the perfection in the hope that God is on the throne and his plan is working out perfectly. So today's sermon is called Hope Perfected. We went from hope revealed to hope perfected. So we see this in verse 17 of Matthew. Matthew seems to make a big thing out of these numbers and the generations. He said there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations from Babylon to the arrival of Christ, 14 generations. The very first thing that we should see here in Matthew's generations is that they cover the entire history of the Hebrew people. They're encapsulated right there in, in, in their entire story. From the moment that Abraham is chosen by God right up to the moment that Jesus Christ is born. We get a sense just in that of this epic story that we're talking about. The history of the Jews is, is a unique story. They've been chosen, a story of people chosen by God for a specific purpose, delivered by him into a promised land so that he can bring redemption to the entire world through them. Matthew not only details all this, but he establishes a pattern, and you can feel it as you go through this. It's a rhythm of time, a rhythm of epics. He sets up a meter and, and, and that draws his readers in and kind of reminds them that there, there's some sort of beautiful poem or maybe a song being sung in the middle of all this. One that has incredible meaning, one that spans thousands of years, one that sets the stage for a single moment in the history of the world that Matthew writes about 
A moment where a baby is born. We should be able to see all that in the opening verses of Matthew. It's not by coincidence, it's by plan that this is the beginning of the New Testament, the start of a new phase of God's self-revelation. The opening chapters of the rest of the story, we should see that in here, we should feel that, we should understand it. The rhythm changes, the meter of the New Testament is subtly different of the, the meter of the Old Testament. It's the first thing we should notice about these, these opening verses of Matthew. The second thing is this. It lies in this repetition of number 14. There, there's significance here. Before we get too deep in that, let me mention there's nothing that we're going to talk about this morning that has anything to do with numerology. Uh, that subject's come up a couple times since I've been around town. Numerology, according to Webster's, is the study of the occult significance of numbers. In other words, the belief that numbers can have some mystical influence on the events in the world. A lot of us are aware that certain numbers have significant roles in the Bible. The, uh, they could, that they're there to reveal some aspect of God, some, some of his attributes or, or how he functions. And while that is a biblical truth, the power that we see is never in the numbers that we read. It's always in, in God and his presence in the world. It's always in the character and nature of God, what he reveals about himself, what he shows us through those numbers. Still, we would do well to pause and consider carefully certain numbers when they pop up in Scripture. You know them. Number three is frequently used symbolically. Three days, three months, three years, three members of the Trinity. Number four frequently is linked to something having to do with the physical world or a measure of time. We've got the four corners of the earth, the four directions, the four winds, four faces of the cherubim in Revelation uh, and Ezekiel, 40 days, 40 nights. 40 years was a generation, multiples of four. We have 10 commandments, don't we? We have 10 plagues. We have a tithe, which is a tenth of everything. We have the, the, the 10 bridesmaids, 10 virgins. There are Jacob's 12 sons. And then they become 12 tribes, and then we see 12 apostles. So numbers can be important. And all those numbers there are used repeatedly. They're not there to show us the occult power of the number, but to demonstrate the faithful consistency of God. God uses them in the Holy Scriptures to show us that we can trust him, to show us that he's sitting on the throne, that he's in control. He sits in authority over all of history. There are no hard and fast rules for interpreting any of those numbers other than when we see them, we should say to ourselves, maybe I need to slow down just a little bit and take a closer look at this passage here and see if God's trying to show me something in here, show me something about himself. So the difference between numerology and biblical truth is where the power resides. In numerology, it's in the numbers. In biblical truth, it's in God. It's in his presence and his power among his people, plan of redemption for his children. So we see one of these significant numbers in Matthew chapter 1. It's right there in those three periods covered by the genealogy. So, all the generations, verse 17, from Abraham to Adam were 14 generations. 
And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now you've got to dig to find the significant number here, but you don't have to dig too far, brothers and sisters. Each of these historical periods in the uh, history of the Hebrew nation are divided up into 14 generations. Now, number 14 is not a significant number. We, I think this might be the only place we see it. But watch this now. The number seven is, isn't it? We're familiar with the number seven. 42 generations, listen, are six groups of seven generations each. And we all know how important the number seven is. It is the biblical number of perfection. To the Jews, it meant completion. It meant fullness. It indicated persistence. There was a connotation of perpetuity, of eternity to the number seven. And the Jews arrived at their concept of what number seven meant by studying the ways God uses it in Scripture. And it starts out at the very beginning, doesn't it? God rests on the seventh day. One of the early patterns that we see in the Bible, work six days, then rest. Becomes a pattern for God's people. We see it in the commandments. The people are told to work for six days and then rest on the seventh. The seventh day is called what? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. God commands a Sabbath rest for his children. Now, it's not just because we get tired. There's there's a lesson to be learned in this. And that pattern shows up again in the Mosaic Law. So God's telling us through all this to pay attention to the number seven. Every seven years, the land is to lay fallow. It gives it a rest. It gives it a chance to, to re-nourish itself. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. There are more. Leviticus 25 tells us that for every seven periods of seven years, every 49th year is to be the year of Jubilee. Now, what happened in the year of Jubilee? It's a year when all slaves are set free. It's a year when all debts are forgiven. In other words, the land and all the people will have rest from all of their burdens on the seventh seven. All these sevens point towards something that God wants us to see. First, we see that in each of them is a time of rest. It's a time of regeneration, a time of refreshment, a time of renewal, a time when all work ceases and God's people rest in him and his provision. The second thing we should see is that it's a time of freedom. It's a time of freedom from slavery, freedom from indebtedness, freedom from the burdens that the world causes us to carry around and the troubles we have in life. All, All the sevens in the Bible point towards rest and towards freedom. That's what we see in the Old Testament. So let's take that concept and plug it into Matthew chapter 1, where we find three fourteen or what? Six sevens of generations. Now, to, to the Jew, he would see immediately what's in here. He would see an indicator that things are progressing along pretty well and are getting near the end of a cycle, coming close to a seventh seven. 
But anyone following along the narrative of the Bible, anyone following along the, the thread of truth that goes through the Old Testament should be able to see the message in Matthew 1. You should see what Matthew wanted the Jews to see, that, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the seventh seven. Jesus Christ is the perfection of the seventh seven. That's what's buried in here. So far from being some mystical formula, all the sevens we see in the Bible, just like everything else in the Bible, points towards what? Towards Jesus Christ. Points towards the moment when the baby arrives on earth. It is the beginning. It's the beginning of perfection. It's the beginning of constancy of God's presence. It's the beginning of perpetuity. It's the beginning of the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. And those who are in him, those who believe in the Son of God, those who repent from their sins, will find what? They'll find rest. They'll find freedom. They'll find it in him, and they'll find it eternally. From a human perspective of time, God's perspective is a little bit different. The birth of Christ for the believer it's the beginning of eternity with him. It's the end of our slavery and the beginning of our freedom. It's the end of our struggle and the beginning of our rest. Now Paul tries to tell us this in his letter to the Romans. Listen to this out of Romans 8, starting with verse 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until when? He says, until now. Now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. It's a time of promise. It's a time of new life. It's a time of renewal, a time of replenishment, a time of restoration, a time of regeneration after thousands of years of scriptural examples, lessons, observances, festivals, rituals, jubilees, Sabbaths, and more. The promise of rest arrives in this little village outside of Jerusalem in the first century. And all, all anyone has to do to lay hold of that rest, all anyone has to do to experience the freedom that that offers is to believe in the one who came to give it to us. Those who believe can appropriate, can incorporate that rest and that freedom into their daily lives. Those who don't believe, well, they're still waiting. They're still striving to find the rest 
They're still trying, trying to fill some vacuum that they have deep inside that day by day they find out that the things of the world just aren't going to fill that, aren't going to satisfy that need they have for rest and freedom. Writer of Hebrews describes that struggle this way. Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, those who don't have it, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Talk about those that aren't listening. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Loved ones, beloved, here on Christmas morning, the seventh seventh, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ You see what Matthew has embedded in his gospel? It's a revelation of God's perfection. It's a revelation of God's supreme seventh. We've been talking about it for thousands of years now. He brings it in the flesh to our world. A revelation of his plan of redemption in and through his son. A culmination of of the very first promises that appeared all the way back in Genesis 1 when God says, on the seventh we rest. Happens in an appointed time. Happens by God's plan. And it honors him in the way it rolls out. Do you understand? you have a better feeling now for the story of Jesus Christ? the Christmas story and how it is so much more than just a story. It's a story to end all stories. Matthew's genealogy tells us that the story of, of Jesus Christ is the story of the intersection between heaven and earth. The tale of God entering into the human race making it possible for all those people in the genealogy, for, for the prostitute and for the king and for the loser and for the winner to sit down at the table with the king of all kings, 
and the Lord of all lords and dine with him and have fellowship with him and have a relationship with him. For all of them to come together as a family of God. It is a perfect story. It's a story of hope. And it's not just simple hope. It's a story of hope perfected. Made complete. A story that's taken thousands of years to tell. One that is so ancient in time that it goes back from before the beginning of time and reaches into our hearts, into this sanctuary this morning and offers you a place at the table. And the beauty of all this is that it's an offer that comes by grace. It's not based on anything you've done. It's not based on anything you can do. It's based on what God has done. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to get ready. All we have to do is believe. Believe that God sent his only son down to earth in the form of this little baby to bring us the rest and the freedom that the Christmas story tells us about. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift of mercy. See, that's why Christmas is about giving and receiving. That's why we have this compulsion inside us to give. That's why we get so much joy in receiving because that's the echo of God saying, I'm going to give you salvation and all you have to do is receive it. That's why we're moved on a day like today. And that's why we have the Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the template to every good story that we've ever heard, that it rests in these verses we see in Matthew 1 and 2, the verses we read in Luke 2, the image we get when we look at every nativity scene and sing every Christmas carol. Father, our heart's cry is for the hope perfected that we find in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that that is a cause for joy a cause for celebration, a cause for us to come out of our homes on Christmas morning and gather together and proclaim the excellencies of your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.